Turn, if you will, at this time to Mark chapter 3. Mark 3, as we continue our study in this gospel. Last week we considered a rather difficult section of Scripture concerning the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit against the Holy Spirit. Um, And um, this evening I want to reread what we read last week and consider um, especially the closing verses of chapter 3, verses 31 through 35. But in order for us to get the context of that passage, I want us to back up to re- and read from verse 30, I'm sorry, verse 20 through the end of chapter 3. Hear now the word of the Lord. Then he went home and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they were They went out to seize him, for they were saying, He is out of his mind. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He is possessed by Beelzebub, and by the prince of demons he casts out demons. And he called them to him and said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand." And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man, and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying he has an unclean spirit. And his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Amen. And we praise God that He has spoken to us this evening in His holy and inerrant Word. Let us pray. Lord God, we thank You for Your Word. We desire to sit under its authoritative message this evening. We ask that You would give us grace that we might do that. And may Your Holy Spirit work in all of our hearts as we hear Your Word proclaimed this evening. In Christ's name we ask. Amen. I have told you probably on more than one occasion why I like the Gospel of Mark, but one thing that we have not discussed is some of the literary features of it. And I've kind of been saving that for this message this evening because we arrive at something that I like to call a Markan sandwich in this text. Now, the official word that scholars like to use is intercalcate. Intercalation. See, I can't even say it. It sounds like something, some bad disease that, that, that you have and you go to the doctor for. So we'll just call it a Mark and Sandwich. Now, what Mark does is he gives us a section of a passage and, and of, a, of a story, and then he interrupts it to give us another account that somewhat parallels and illustrates the first. And then he goes back with a closing argument for the whole passage, like... Um, and, and each account plays off the other with interrelated themes, like 
two pieces of bread and delicious meat and cheese in the middle. And whenever we would talk about this in our New Testament class, when we studied Mark, somehow pastrami would always come up because that's what our professor liked to talk about when, when he was talking about a sandwich. But in this text that's before us this evening, of course, each section is important on its own. And last week we talked about the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit and the unforgivable sin and how that the scribes were, were really blaspheming in saying that Christ's work that he was doing was, could be somehow ascribed to Satan. And then we talked about also that in, in our setting, what we needed to guard against is what we read about in Hebrews 6 and also in Hebrews 10 about apostasy, about those that, that we would be in church with even, those that profess to be believers, those that have tasted the goodness and enjoyed the blessing of the word of the Lord and yet would eventually fall away and become enemies of the cross of Christ. And that sobering message is there, and we don't want to pass over that. And so that's why we, we took time last week to consider that in some detail. But this evening, we want to look at especially verses 31 to 35, and what Christ is saying about his true family. And we want to look at this under three headings. First of all, we see increasing division in this text. Next of all, we want to consider as part of this false markers of Christ's family. And then finally, we want to consider the heart of this message. What are the true markers? What is it that identifies those who are true members of Christ's family? Now, we've talked about, and, and I'll, I'll just say it briefly here, we've talked about increasing hostility towards Christ, towards His message. Of course, the scribes and the leaders were, were the chief opponents of Him. We saw it in chapter 2, where He healed the paralytic that was lowered through the roof. We see it in the text that we talked about last week, that, that middle section that we read this evening, how additional scribes came, and they were hostile towards the message of Christ. They accused him. They blasphemed in that they ascribed the works that Jesus was doing to somehow being done through the power of Satan. So we've, <clears throat> we've talked about that unforgivable sin, but we see this, this corrupt hostility growing. And we see in, in these final verses, 31 through 35, we see this hostility kind of crystallizing into two distinct groups. And Mark gives us some markers about those groups in that he says in verse 31 that they, his family was outside. His mother and his brothers came and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. Now, I think he's saying more than just simply their geographical location where they were standing. I think he is trying to portray a message to us that they were outside as opposed to those who were inside with Christ. Now remember, just previous to this, Jesus had just chosen um, his disciples, and Mark has named those for us earlier in the passage. And it is those disciples that were with Jesus. It, were, it was those disciples and others that were inside with him. His 
his family, we have just read about in those opening verses, misunderstood him. They tried to seize him. They somehow thought he was out of his mind. They were not getting his message. Even his own flesh and blood did not fully understand what he was doing. So in this passage, we see these these sections playing off of one another. And we learn that whether it's the hostile scribes who profanely accuse Christ as working miracles by the power of Satan, or his own family who are embarrassed by him and really in a sense reject him, both of those groups are outsiders. And in contrast, verse 34 tells us that those who truly understand and obey him are the insiders. Those are the ones that are beginning to get his message. Jesus even goes as far as to say that these people are his true family. Those who do his will are his brother and sister and mother. And this passage can seem somewhat shocking to him that Jesus would respond in such a way. And it's, we could say that it seems callous of him. But remember, what did Jesus do upon the cross? He was very concerned about his mother. He did not disrespect his mother in any way. He wanted to make sure that, he was, that she was cared for after his death and after his ascension, death, resurrection, and ascension. And he entrusted her to the care of his beloved disciple, John. We also know that Jesus expressed love for the outsider in a general sense. He, 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 his emotions towards the city of Jerusalem and his own people were expressed as he lamented over the people of Jerusalem where he said, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing. He had a compassion for people. He even had a compassion for the rulers of the Jews. It was a ruler of the Jew. It was a Pharisee who came to him in John 3. Nicodemus came by night. He was sincere in his questions towards Christ. And Jesus taught him. And later we see that the same Nicodemus was one who cared for the body of Christ following his crucifixion. From these examples, we're shown that Christ does not categorically reject his family. And he doesn't reject the rulers simply based upon who they are. But it does teach us, this text does teach us something very fundamental about it, what it means to be part of Christ's true family. But to understand that, I think we need to consider what some people think about when they think about being part of Christ's family. And those are under the heading of false markers of inclusion in Christ's family. And it's very clear from our text here that family ties are not what makes you a member of Christ's family. It doesn't matter who your father or mother are. Your acceptance into the family of God is not based upon family affiliation. Secondly, it's not your national or ethnic identity that brings you into a family relationship with Christ. Some Christians speak about our great nation of America and almost make it sound like being American and being Christian are one and the same. That is not what makes you a Christian. That is not what makes you part of God's family. Being American does not bring you into Christ's family any more than having a certain color of hair or eyes will bring you into Christ's family. 
If you are God's child today, it is not based upon your national or ethnic affiliations. We know also that inclusion into Christ's family is not based upon your church attendance or even going to the right church. I love our denomination, but being part of a certain church or denomination is no guarantee that we are God's child. I once heard a man say that he was a seventh-generation Presbyterian. Now, most of us probably couldn't say that. But it doesn't matter what church you go to. There's more to being God's child than being in a certain church. Lastly, we must remember that you cannot become part of God's family by osmosis. Now, if you're like me and haven't had much biology since high school, you may have forgotten what osmosis is. But in, I remember um, a high school biology class in which we had a little bag that had some, I think, some saline solution in it, and we put it in another solution, and, and we saw how um, uh, this solution or the solvent was absorbed through this semi-permeable membrane. Um, I'm probably butchering this. Jeremiah's smiling at me. But basically, your, your, um, the solvent moves through this semi-permeable permeable membrane. The reason I remember this class day is on a dare, one of my fellow students swallowed that little bag of saline solution. I don't recommend that, young people, by the way. (laughs) However, you can't become a Christian by osmosis. You can't become a Christian simply by trying to absorb some of the concentrated religion or Bible knowledge that you might experience at church. Being part of God's family means much more than hanging around other Christians and trying to soak up some of their supposed goodness. You're not brought into God's family by osmosis. If you do not know Christ as your Savior, if you're attending church, or perhaps you're a young person that attends youth group with a group of Christians, you must know that God is calling you to more than simply being around Christians. Christ is calling you to more than just that. Now, don't get me wrong. Being around Christians should be very helpful in pointing others to Christ. But Jesus' call involves more than just hanging around the right people. So what is that call then? What are the true markers of inclusion in Christ's family? We've looked at the distinction between the insiders and the outsiders. We've looked at some false markers, if you will, of being in Christ's family. But what then identifies true children of God? Well, Jesus says it very plainly in our text. He says in verse 35, Whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Doing the will of God. What does that mean? Well, it's obedience to his commands. It's doing those things that please God. It's doing what God has told us to do. Now, you might say, wait a minute. That sounds like just straight up moralism. Well, taken in isolation, you might say that, but there's more included in this. Justification is by grace working through faith. But, and we are only justified by faith in Christ. But faith is implied in this. Following God's commands involves repentance and faith that we saw in chapter 1, where Jesus said, repent and believe the gospel. It begins with faith and repentance, which brings a person into God's kingdom, into Christ's spiritual family. 
And being a child of God gives us a love for God and a love for his commandments that outsiders do not have. Those who are not children of God do not share that desire to do God's will. But the lives of God's children should be marked by joyful obedience. We should be able to say along with the psalmist, Oh, how I love thy law. It is my meditation all the day. That's not, of course, not to say that the life of the believer is perfect and that that we always follow God's will, or even that we always desire God's will as we should. But yet there should be that marker upon the life of a believer that they love God, that they respond to Christ's work of redemption, and they respond in gratitude, which leads to joyful obedience. They should embrace God's law, not out of duty, but out of a love and gratitude for their Savior. What are the markers of inclusion in God's family? Faith and repentance resulting in joyful obedience to God's commands. So what are the implications of this? What are the practical lessons that we can take home? What is it that you can take, put in your pocket and take home for you with you? Well... I think we need to, there's about four things I want us to think about in closing. One, Christ's claims are exclusive. Entrance into Christ's family is only upon his terms. Satan would have us believe that Christ's exclusive claims are harsh, rude, ungracious. But belonging to Christ's family, being a child of God is an enormous privilege and entrance is not based upon whims of a, of, of a man. It's not like the sign that I've seen on my son's door, no girls allowed, where rules are just made because a person feels like they can. No, becoming an insider to God's family is based upon the obedience of faith to the eternal God of the universe, the one who made us, the one who owns us. He has every right to explain entrance into his kingdom, entrance into his family. Christ's claims are exclusive. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. But the same one who said that said, Come unto me, all ye who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. What a blessing it is to be part of Christ's spiritual family. Secondly, it's, a, it's an encouragement to us that no matter what your position in life is, rich, poor, well-known, outcast, disrespected by the world, no matter if you're part of Christ's family, you're a child of the King. If you feel that no one loves you, if you are God's child, then know you are loved with an everlasting love and a love that will not let you go. If you have no earthly family and you are God's child, You have a family. You have a family with whom you will spend eternity. What a blessing that is. Thirdly, we should remember that inclusion in Christ's family should be our primary identification. What is the thing that you want to be known for? What is it that you want people to walk away, maybe after the first time they've met you, and think about the single thing that identifies you? What aspect of your history and personality is most important to you? If you are God's child, it should be your identity in Christ. Our identity in Christ is what truly matters. 
This surpasses our family ties, our political affiliation, our ethnic identity, or any professional accomplishments that we may have. Our identity in Christ should surpass all forms of nationalism and ethnic tribalism. We think about the atrocities which have been committed by those who profess Christ, not the least of which the chattel slavery of previous centuries in our nation and the resulting oppression that continued for many years and unfortunately still continues in many ways. Our love for our fellow man and the union with Christ that believers share should humble us and give us a love for our brothers and sisters in Christ which surpasses any national or ethnic affiliation. Galatians 3 tells us, For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many as you as were baptized into Christ and have put on Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. May I go so far as to say that we should feel more closely joined to brothers and sisters in places like Peru or Zambia or even a Hispanic or African-American congregation of people in the church than we do with our own neighbors who look just like us and speak our language. It's our identity in Christ that should unite us together as believers. This is not to say that we lose any other identity. We can still be proud to be American or Asian or African, yet our identity in Christ is primary. Fourthly, we need to remember that Christ's teaching here should help us keep our natural family in right perspective. If you've come from a dysfunctional family where relations are not as they should be, again, remember, Christ, your identity in Christ is your primary identity. Some of you have come from a great family, but I know that some families have tended to idolize their family. Now, remember, an idol is not just some carved image that we bow down to, although that is a message of Scripture An idol can be something that is good that becomes ultimate. So how can you idolize your family? Well, if you, and and I must say that that some of these I borrowed from another sermon that I listened to this week by, by my friend Adam Parker as he preached this. But I thought these were so good that I wanted to bring these because I think that sometimes we can have blind spots. We can have blind spots concerning our family. And Christ's message here, I think, will help us Maybe see some of those. But if you think your family has to be perfect, you might be making an idol of them. If you think your family's perfect, well, I have a secret for you. They're not. They're sinners like you are. And they need Jesus. And you need to show them Christ. Parents, please don't raise your children to think they have to meet everyone else's expectation. Raise them to glorify God. Of course, there are societal and social norms that that we kind of expect our kids to conform to, but even those should be done under the umbrella of bringing glory to God. It's okay to let your children make mistakes. Let them grow through those things. And let them see and hear your repentance when you've sinned. This is vital to help them see the grace of God at work in the life of a believer. Also, if you think you will be fulfilled by your family, 
you may be making an idol of them. And this can be for those that have families and for those that do not. You might be a young person that's desperately hoping and to find a spouse. And that might become such an issue to you that it becomes an idol. You think that you have to have that one right person to fulfill you. No, your identity is in Christ. Yes, Scripture teaches that he that finds a wife finds a good thing and receives the blessing of the Lord. But it is all in God's timing, and his blessing will come. We also need to remember that if you are consistently choosing family activities over being in God's house and with the Lord's people on the Lord's day, you might be idolizing your family. And I've seen this in families before. They, they feel like they're too busy. They need family time. Yes, we do need family time. But if you're too busy that the, the Lord's Day becomes the family time instead of worship, then you're too busy. Take time. Step back. Pri- reprioritize things. Find out ways. Ask the Lord to show you things that you can drop out of your life so that you can be with God's people and worshiping with the Lord's people. So what's the answer? If you've idolized your family, do you love them less? Certainly not. The answer to that, of course, is to love Christ more. Husbands, when you love Christ more, you will love your wife better. You are to love her as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. Christ is the ultimate example of selfless love. The better we know him, the better we will love our wives, men. The same could be said for wives. When you love Christ more, you will love your husband better. The beautiful thing about this teaching is that Jesus takes those that are outsiders and makes them insiders. We've talked about that. Why did he choose that motley crew of disciples that he did? Well, he chose them because he he wanted them and he made them into the apostles that built the church It is God's way to take the most unlikely people and make them his children and make them trophies of his grace. Now, as you well know, I'm new to Texas, but one thing that among many things that I love about being here is that I'm surrounded by people that are transplanted to our great state. And I have felt the opportunity to identify myself as a Texan kind of from the very beginning. And I consider that a blessing. I can fly that Lone Star flag as proudly as the person who's who's a seventh-generation Texan. But Jesus is still in the business of bringing outsiders into his family. So what about you tonight? Where are you? If you're on the outside, come to Christ. Repent and place your faith in him. And when you do, you'll see that there's no better place to be than part of God's forever family. Let us pray.